When we typically think of how to deal with violent crime, most people immediately think of the police and the criminal justice system. You know, we're arguing that there's a, a different set of actors, a different set of investments that can be made to residents and local community organizations, and there's really good evidence that that will have a strong impact on violence. Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation, where we feature the most innovative work and thinking on the problems of the criminal justice system. I'm Matt Watkins, and today my guest is Patrick Sharkey. Sharkey is an urbanist and professor of sociology at New York University and the author of this year's Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life, and The Next War on Violence. In the book, Sharkey traces the effects of the remarkable reduction in crime that has taken place across the U.S. since the 1990s. He looks at who has benefited most from this shift and lays out an agenda for protecting what he sees as incomplete and fragile gains. The book is in part a hymn to cities, what makes them thrive and keeps them safe. And Sharkey gathers some pretty extraordinary evidence of the importance of community organizing and community-based nonprofits such as ourselves. But I promise that's only part of the reason we wanted to talk to him today. Patrick, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And you're exactly right that CCI is doing a lot of stuff that I talk about. So, you know, it's good to be here. So before we get into the possible and disputed reasons for this great crime decline and and the question of who has benefited the most from it, could we just talk first about what this great crime decline actually is, how how remarkable it has been? Yeah, sure. So from the 70s to the 90s, that was a period where I I wouldn't say most American cities, but about half of of our major cities were intensely violent places. Uh, So the national homicide rate was up around somewhere between 8 and 10 murders for every 100,000 people. And a lot of of cities, the murder rate was up over 20, 30, 40, 50 murders per every 100,000 people. And that's really a level of violence that is only found in the most violent places in the world, war-torn nations. Uh, and that was a common experience in American cities over that period. So since then, in the focus of the book is really on the years post-1990, uh, uh, violence has fallen by about half. And then in a lot of cities, New York being the best example, but not the only example, the level of violence has just plummeted. Uh, the murder rate has fallen by 75% or more. Uh, cities have just completely transformed uh, and, it, you know, it's not just New York. It's D.C., San Francisco, L.A., uh, even places like Minneapolis, Fort Worth, Dallas, San Diego. These are all cities that have just completely transformed over the past couple decades. And so the book is really focused on on understanding the consequences of that. You know, how has that changed city life? How has that changed the nature of urban inequality? That's my focus here. Yeah, I think there's a, a frustration around here, actually, that uh, the, the media and therefore uh, the public don't actually pay enough attention to uh, the remarkable nature of, of this decline. I mean, specifically in New York City, where we are today, but more generally, have you thought about uh, why that might be and, and what the effect of that is? Well, I think, you know, Steven Pinker wrote this book about the long-term decline of violence in human history, and he has makes a really compelling case that it's it's hard to recruit activists or advocates to a cause by telling them that it's getting better and better every year. And I think that's certainly true here. It's a much more compelling story to say that violence is spiking or there's a you know mass bloodshed on, on the streets. And it's a much less 
compelling story to say that things are actually getting much better. Uh, the level of violence is falling. But, you know, in truth, if we want to understand cities, and this is the trend that it, it has to be out in the forefront, we have to think about, you know, what happens when a place becomes safe. And the positive story from the book is is that as a city becomes safe, as public spaces become places that are not dominated by the threat of violence, uh, there really is a transformation uh, of public life. Uh, and, and the greatest benefits are not, you know, just to people touring through Central Park. Uh, the greatest benefits are really felt by the most disadvantaged segments of the population. Yeah. Could we get a little more into that, actually, what you call the, the social costs of violence, which are much higher than simply the, the physical cost. Yeah, the costs of violence are dramatic, and that's really what got me started on this research. Most of my, uh, my work in the first uh, few years of my career focused on the consequences of growing up in very disadvantaged neighborhoods, what that means for kids, why it seems to have such a, a substantial impact on, on kids in so many different domains. Uh, but I really hadn't answered the question of, of why, what was actually going on in very poor, very disadvantaged neighborhoods that seem to have such a big impact on kids. And I just kept getting more and more hints that violence might be the crucial mechanism, or at least one of the crucial mechanisms. Uh, And so I started to pursue that research on my own and and look for tangible evidence, look for for very concrete causal evidence about the impact of, of violence. And some of the first studies I did uh, suggested that you know just being exposed to specific events, a homicide down the street, uh, has a more damaging impact than I would have ever imagined going into this uh, line of research. Uh, so I started doing several years of research, just looking at the consequences of violence, not just for kids, but also for cities, for community life. And and the conclusion from that, from those years of, of research, was was that we should really be thinking of violence as a fundamental challenge of American cities, uh, meaning nothing else works in a city if public spaces are unsafe, if there is a constant threat uh, of being victimized or assaulted. Uh, Homeowners are less likely to invest in a neighborhood and raise their kids in a neighborhood. People are less likely to venture out into public spaces and, and to use public amenities like libraries or even playgrounds. Teachers are less likely to invest in a school or school district if, if it's violent. You know, business owners, same deal, less likely to open up shop. We've known for a long time that violence is harmful, obviously, but the impact is so much more severe and so much more widespread than even I realized going in. Uh, and that's really why I started studying this. I, I started to think of this as, as the fundamental challenge of cities. Uh, city life just doesn't work when public spaces are violent. Yeah, I, I was really struck by the findings on um, on kids and schools and uh, the results of tests that are taking place after a, a violent incident has occurred and, and this notion of violence as something that just occupies the mind. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. It's And the first study I did, I'll just talk about very quickly because this is what brought me down this road, but I, w- I was trying to generate very concrete evidence about what happens if there is a major incident of violence very close to a child. How does that affect the child on a day-to-day level? The way I did it was to make comparisons of of children who lived in the exact same neighborhood and were given these assessments of cognitive skills or or academic achievement tests. And the only difference between the children was when they were given these assessments. So some kids were given the assessments just before 
incidents of violence had taken place, in particular homicide. I focused on homicide. Other kids in the same exact neighborhood who otherwise looked identical by pure chance were given the same assessments just after uh, major incidents of, of violence had taken place down the street on the block. And what I found in that first study is that if, if you compare those kids, uh, the child who took the assessment just after uh, there's a homicide down the street scores dramatically lower. It looks like that child has missed two years of schooling. Uh, that is how large an impact that single incident has on the child. And, and as you said, it's not incidents of violence don't make children less intelligent, but they occupy their minds. Violence affects kids' sleep. It affects their cortisol levels. It gets into the minds of kids. It gets under the skin of kids. And, and these are kids who are not directly affected. These are kids across the community. Uh, so violence really has a much longer reach than I think we realized. And, and the evidence on that has gotten dramatically stronger over the past decade or so. And then digging deeper a little bit into this this question of who has benefited the most from the decline, and it's not always who we expect because we might think, oh, it's the decline in violence is leading to more Starbucks in the corner, uh, et cetera. But in fact, you talk about the decline as a real public health victory uh, on a par with an anti-smoking or anti-obesity campaign, um, focusing specifically, I think, on this on on the homicide rate and life expectancy and and the racial discrepancy gap that uh, has uh, reduced between, say, blacks and whites as blacks and whites as a result of this crime decline. So, could you talk a little bit about this public health aspect? Yeah, sure. So, I think the most tangible way to talk about the consequences or the impact of the crime drop is to look at lives lost. And for most groups, the drop in homicide mortality hasn't had a huge impact on uh, life expectancy because homicide is not a major cause of death for uh, certainly for the white population, um, but for most segments of the, of the population. But for black men, uh, the impact of the homicide drop on life expectancy was enormous. Uh, so the decline in homicides has led to an improvement in life expectancy of almost a year, about 0.8 years is what we uh, estimate. And and that sometimes seems like an o- underwhelming statistic uh, until you look at other factors and how they affect life expectancy. So it is incredibly difficult for any public health advancement or, or advancement in medical technology to generate that type of improvement in life expectancy. You know, this should really be thought of as one of the most important public health advancements over the past few decades for African-American men um, and then, you know, obesity gets $700 million in funding for research from NIH. Violence prevention gets, you know, a fraction, a tiny fraction uh, of that funding. So we really don't think of violence as a major public health issue, but our evidence suggests that we should. If we start talking a little bit about how we account for the decline, you present cities as having this almost remarkable natural self-defense capacity, in a sense, to repair and and improve themselves, and that, that there's almost a, a sort of counter-movement to the movement of violence that emerges in the form of grassroots community organizing and community-based nonprofits such as ourselves. Y- your book is, in many ways, a data-driven work. What evidence is there for this role of, of nonprofits and grassroots community organizing in the great crime decline? So I think, you know, hopefully one of the major contributions is to provide that evidence. Um, I think the story of residents and local community groups who fought back uh, 
to retake city streets, sidewalks to march against violence, to provide services to people coming out of prison, treatment for addiction, uh, safe spaces for kids. Those stories have always been out there, but they've been told in the form of case studies. You know, they've been told in the form of stories about individual people and their heroism, which is, you know, entirely appropriate. Um, Those stories should be told. But there has been very little uh, national evidence uh, generated on how local community organizations have affected violence. It's been mostly um, uh, anecdotal, I would say. Uh, And so what we did, the Urban Institute makes available a national database of nonprofits using IRS data. And so we took advantage of of natural experiments that produced shocks in the number of nonprofits uh, and then looked at how this affected crime, how these kind of short-term shifts affected crime. And the results are very strong. Uh, You know, I think the take-home result is that in a small city, so think about a city with about 100,000 people, every new nonprofit that is focused on building a stronger neighborhood or or, uh, confronting violence reduces the rate of murder and violent crime by about 1%. Part of the reason we did this was to provide a better explanation for why violence fell. And I think the the result suggests that we should think about the proliferation of the nonprofit sector in the 1990s and kind of the mobilization that took place in the neighborhoods hit hardest by violence. We should think of that as one of the major trends that is responsible uh, for the crime drop alongside the continuing rise of imprisonment, alongside the continuing expansion of, of the police, which have gotten so much attention. But there's another dimension because it, it doesn't just help us explain what happened. It also gives us a new model going forward when we think about who are the actors uh, who and the institutions that can play the, the uh, most prominent role in confronting violence as we move forward. You know, this evidence suggests that local community organizations and residents should be in that conversation, should be given the resources to play a much stronger role in confronting violence. And so when we typically think of how to deal with violent crime, I think most people naturally immediately think of the police and the the criminal justice system. You know, we're arguing that there's a, a different set of actors, a different set of investments that can be made to residents and local community organizations, and there's really good evidence that that will have a strong impact on violence. You did some field work, I think, for the book with community organizers and anti-violence advocates. And I'm just wondering, I mean, concretely, when, say, our Red Hook Community Justice Center launches a, you know, an anti-graffiti cleanup day and gets neighbors out and makes this a kind of communal project, what what concretely is, is going on there that's contributing to a decline in crime? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the main mechanism is that it's retaking public space. You know, neighborhoods are vulnerable to violence. Neighborhoods are vulnerable to falling apart more generally when they are abandoned, when no one is in charge. That is when public streets can become violent. And that happened for a few decades. You know, that that was a process. The abandonment of, of urban neighborhoods took place in a very systematic way from uh, the late 1960s all the way through the early 1990s. Uh, So when community groups come together, 
to retake whatever it might be. That's an assertion that we're in charge of this space. Uh, We are overseeing this space is a better way to put it. So someone is looking out for these streets, these sidewalks, these alleyways, these playgrounds, these parks. We're looking out for these public spaces, and we're looking out for all the people within them. And when there are strong institutions that have that mindset of looking out over public space and making sure that everyone who moves through those public spaces uh, is safe and is welcomed, then those neighborhoods are much more resilient. Those neighborhoods are much less likely to fall apart. And then to talk about mass incarceration for for a moment, putting aside the uh, immense costs of of that model that we're continuing to live with, obviously, on, on almost every level, what role did the, the the spike in admissions to jails and prisons, what, what role did that play in contributing to the crime decline? Yeah, it's a great question. I like how you put it. You have to kind of address this as an empirical question, then as a moral question, and consider both dimensions. I think the empirical question is not entirely settled, but there's a somewhat of a consensus that the the increase in incarceration, you know, that started in the 1970s and only recently has has subsided did have an impact on crime. You know, so I think if we're having an honest conversation, we have to acknowledge that there was an impact. The real debate is about how much of an impact it had and the timing of it. There's uh, some more recent research that suggests that the continued increase in incarceration since the 1990s, when just more and more people were being thrown into jails and prisons, had no impact on crime, but that the earlier rise in incarceration did have an impact on crime from the 70s and the 1980s. So that's the empirical story. Then then there's the moral dimension, which is what kind of society are we when we lock up a quarter of the world's population of, of prisoners and when there's such a disproportionate toll on one uh, specific segment of the popu- population, African-American males in particular. And that's where I think you know the empirical question is, is not entirely settled. I think the moral question is settled. And there's more and more of a consensus that the costs of this approach to dealing with violent crime uh, far outweigh any benefits. And then to turn to the question of law enforcement and more intensive policing and the issue of of so-called broken windows policing, uh, which I saw in a recent magazine article described broken windows as something that both saved lives and fueled stop and frisk. So it's in the in a similar way to mass incarceration, perhaps there's this complicated balance sheet to draw up. So w- what do you see as the role of broken windows policing and, and often incredibly aggressive stop and, and frisk activities by police in the crime decline? Yeah, well, there's this, the idea of broken windows theory, which is really about, you know, it's a theory about dealing with minor cues of disorder or subtle cues of disorder in public spaces as a mechanism to ward off spirals of of decay and and continuing increases in in crime of all sorts. So that's the theory. The issue is how it's been implemented over time. So the theory is only loosely related to the implementation in the case of broken windows policing. And I think, as you say, you know, that theory led to an approach that focused on, you know, not dealing with signs of disorder in public space, but really locking up everyone and making sure that any potential troublemakers are enmeshed in the criminal justice system for a long time. And this is very explicit. 
So the idea of broken windows theory turned into this policy, sometimes called order maintenance uh, policing, but I think is closer to zero tolerance policing, where more and more of the population is enmeshed in the criminal justice system in the lower level courts. Um, Issa Kohler Hausman has a great new book on, on this called Misdemeanor Land, where she talks about how lower level courts became an institution that was essentially managing uh, a large segment of the population. So it became a way to manage the consequences of, of urban poverty and urban inequality. That is then translated into a policy of stop, question, and frisk. So there's no doubt that there's a connection between the original focus on turnstile hopping and the squeegee guys and, and graffiti on subway cars to the policy of mass arrest for misdemeanors to a policy of stop, question, and frisk, which you know culminated in 800,000 people being stopped in you know around 2011. So that progression is very clear. And I think the movement away from that style of policing is also very clear. And, and it has happened in, in a concrete and clear way, over the, not just in New York, but it's happening in a lot of cities. But, you know, to push back a little, the activists will say, well, that era doesn't seem to be completely over. People are still getting picked up on a ton of minor charges. And those people getting picked up are the disproportionately people of color at quite staggering rates. Uh, so can we really say that definitively that this, this era of broken windows policing is over? Yeah, I think you're right that it, um, it, it would be hard to say it's over. Um, I do think we can say that it is just as there was a long-term progression to that culmination of you know 800,000 people being stopped on the street by the police, I think there's now a downward trajectory and a growing recognition that a shift in policing is urgent. And so we've seen it in concrete, in a few concrete ways. Uh, the number of stops has, has obviously plummeted, almost gone away entirely as a tactic of the NYPD. And the number of arrests uh, has also declined uh, dramatically. So overall enforcement has declined. That said, there are still enormous disparities in who is targeted in New York. And I think that conversation, it's easier to say, okay, we're going to slow the use of a given tactic or end the use of a given tactic. It's much harder to say we want a system of policing that does not have a disproportionate impact on low-income communities of color, on non-white people in the city. And I think, you know, to their credit, I think both the NYPD and the mayor's office are having that conversation and are thinking hard about how to do that. But you're, you're entirely right that, that the gaps in who was targeted, in particular by the NYPD, uh, remain severe, and, and it is an increasingly visible issue. You know, one part of this conversation is about how police departments can change and reform, but the other part of the conversation is what other actors have the capacity to play a bigger role, to oversee public spaces and take the place of law enforcement in lots of places, I think that's a more urgent conversation. How can we invest in community organizations? How can we invest in residents uh, so that they can play a greater role in overseeing public spaces, making sure people are not just safe but also welcomed in their communities, making sure they have advocates, not, you know, not just guardians? And that, I think, is a part of the conversation in policing reform that hasn't gotten as much attention. 
your book came out at the beginning of this year, 2018. Um, we're now heading into summer when, when homicide rates often go up. So I, I'm wondering where you think we are now in, in, in some of the big, the big cities in this country that have had problems with violence, Chicago, Baltimore, Oakland, uh, Atlanta. So where you, where you think we are in this moment? And I mean, I suppose what if you could write a coda to your book, an early coda, what it might look like? You know, we had a very serious spike in violence in, in 2016, 2017, uh, very visible in a small number of cities like Baltimore and Chicago, as you noted. But over the past 12 months, uh, we've seen a drop in murder in the vast majority of, of major U.S. cities. So there's actually really promising news that after we saw that large spike for a couple of years, that seems to be subsiding or has reversed. Uh, and so Chicago, for instance, has, had, has now had 15 months of, of dropping murder, um, and that hasn't gotten nearly as much attention as, as the buildup of, of homicide and the increases in homicide. But I think it's, uh, it's important for people to be aware of because it's the consequence of the entire city mobilizing to deal with the spike of, of violence. And I, I went out, you know, I was there a couple of weeks ago, and I met with leaders of foundations, uh, people in the Chicago Police Department, and the degree of response that they've had has been really impressive to see. And, and so there was a crisis there, and the city mobilized, and they still have a huge problem with violence, but it has gotten substantially better over the past 12 months. Other cities, you don't see that type of improvement. You know, so Baltimore has really had difficulty dealing with the surge of violence there. And I think, you know, there has been uh, dysfunction uh, in the police department and the city government, and there just has not been as effective a mobilization against violence there. That said, you know, after two years of, of very worrisome change, when I thought, you know, the main point of my book was no longer valid and, you know, I'd have to retract it, uh, over the past 12 months, we've seen a really promising trend of falling violence in many, uh, most major U.S. cities. You write at the beginning of the book that the new American city is historically safe, but shockingly unequal. Uh, and it seems like a lot of the book is taken up with this question of the relationship between violence and in- inequality. And I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit more about what you see that relationship being exactly and, and how it how it threatens the, the the gains that have been made in recent decades. Yeah, I do think it's a major threat. So the core problem here is that since the 1960s, we have not developed a national approach to dealing with the problems of urban poverty, inequality, and violent crime. And the dominant approach has been to abandon cities, leave them on their own, uh, withdraw resources from state and federal government, and punish residents of uh, particularly in low-income communities of color. I think that that old model has broken down over the past few years, and it's it's clear that a, a model that focuses on punishment is no longer seen as sustainable, seen as tolerable uh, by a substantial portion of the public at least. And so the question then becomes, what's the next model? If you had your druthers, you would really like to see both a reform of sentencing and a reform of housing policy, that the two need to go together, that in some ways you think we can't, as an urbanist, we can't be too focused on just criminal justice reform. It has to go hand in hand with a real investment again in cities. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think it's a 
it's a good thing that there's so much focus on reducing the scale of incarceration. But if people are returning to neighborhoods that don't have strong uh, – that aren't built on a strong foundation of core institutions um, where they do not have the organizations that can help them reintegrate in this, into the community, find stable housing, find employment, uh, reintegrate into their families, then it's going to be an overwhelming challenge, uh, the challenge of, of reducing the scale of incarceration. Um, yeah, so I make the case that we need to invest in core community institutions. We need to invest in not saying this because I'm here, but we need to invest in organizations like uh, CCI that are providing the types of, of supports for people who are enmeshed in the criminal justice system or coming out of the criminal justice system. And that should be the first order challenge, uh, the first order goal of, of social policy. Uh, and of course, it has to come alongside the, the efforts at criminal justice reform, which are already happening. Uh, but I don't think there's been enough focus on investments in the types of institutions that will allow people to successfully integrate back into their communities. Well, Patrick, I want to thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thanks for having me here. It was fun. Um, I've been speaking with Patrick Sharkey. Patrick is a professor of sociology at New York University and the author of this year's uneasy piece, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life and the Next War on Violence. Technical support for today's episode provided by Bill Harkins. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at quivernyc.com. You can always find out more about us at our website, cordinnovation.org. And this has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>